Okay, welcome to Tell Us Your Effing Story on Tour. I'm your host, Bruce McFarlane, CEO of BDC Partners. And I'm at the IFA conference in Phoenix, and I'm without my co-host, John Sully, I've left him back in Australia. In these podcasts, we go behind the scenes with some of the biggest names in the Australian and now global franchise community. Um, this year, we've looked at what's wrong with franchising. Is it broken? Because in Australia, there's been some challenges, but what I'm finding here in the US, that's not the case. Um, I was fortunate to attend the Let's Grow conference in Dallas recently, and I was super impressed with our guest today and keynote speaker at the conference, Aaron Harper, who's the CEO of Rolling Suds. He spoke about responsible franchising. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. It's a big conference, so, it's a, <laughs> so thank you very much for taking some time out today. But before we talk about responsible franchising and sort of diving into your career, a little bit about your background. So yeah. you studied film, so in California. What, what were the goals then and, and what did you learn from studying film? Yeah, so I learned, uh, so I, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, uh, worked in, uh, went to school at UC Santa Barbara, studied film communication and moved down uh, to Los Angeles because I thought I wanted to be a Hollywood agent. <laughs> um, How long did that last? About five years. Oh, five years. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I did a little bit of music stuff afterwards, um, but like I was in the entertainment, film, media industry for about five years and realized um, after doing that, that I didn't like anyone I was working for <laughs> and I didn't want anything that they had. And um, you know, it's when you ask, like, what did I learn? I learned how to deal with people and build relationships because yep. that entire business, like, it's hard to quantify how, where you're going to go in the industry because it's all based on relationships. And so learned how to manage difficult people and build relationships with people and, you know, kind of see where those go. My daughter's studying film, so off track already, but my daughter's studying film, but she's just got into a franchise. We were just talking about that. So I yeah. think hope she might do the same journey. I'll, <laughs> I'll get her to talk to you later on. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the other things that I know you're passionate about is is fitness. And so, yeah. so was that something that you learned early? Because I've just spent some time in San Diego. I just rode my bike up to the UC San Diego. Yeah. That's quite a climb. Yeah. And then down into La Jolla. So did you get your passion for cycling and triathlons then? No. So I started <laughs> so funny story so I got married in Santorini in 2019 to my wife and um, I was like I used that as like a goalpost I'm a goalpost kind of yeah. guy like if I set the goalpost I'll go and um, and I was like all right well I'm gonna do it because I was working out getting ready for yeah. the wedding and everything and I was like you know what I'm gonna do a triathlon and so I convinced my uh, friend at the time to do it with me but he couldn't give me the commitment I kept pushing him he's like so I, I was only going to do it with him. And then about six weeks before the race, he goes, all right, I'm in. And so we did hard training for like six weeks, bought a bike from like, like a commuter bike, oh, really? a Trek <laughs> commuter bike off of Facebook marketplace for like $160 and um, started training on the swimming, which you and I were talking about. The swimming is the most difficult part. And then I've just basically done it since 2019 every year uh, since then. And I compete in between three to seven races per year. I think I, I was saying uh, my journey was a little bit the same. Bought the bike, wasn't going to go the kit though. When did that? I think that was the big step going yeah. from like 
I'm just going to wear normal shorts. I'm just yeah. going to wear that. And then you realize that's not that good for you. Right. And right. then you've got to buy the full triathlon suit. Totally. Straight into the triathlon suit. So uh, not straight into the triathlon <laughs> suit. The triathlon suit, I think, came like year three or something yeah. like that. But, um, you know, the shorts and the bike shorts for sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting journey. And so the learnings from the triathlon, obviously the discipline involved in training for three sports, is that something that obviously you've kept it up? Yeah. Uh, it's good for business and life generally? It is. So it helps me realize that like my body, I, my body can do 10x what I think it can do. And so every time I feel like I've reached a, a point, I can always push. And like, that's the types of people I've been drawn to and the franchisees that have been drawn to Rolling Suds are the people that consistently move the goalpost, which has been really cool to surround myself with those individuals. So triathlon, without triathlons, I wouldn't have as much of that. And another passion is obviously family. So yep. got married in Greece and now, now a child. So now. Tell, tell us about the interrupted sleep and the triathlon, but now, <laughs> now the learnings about being a dad and, and so bringing that into your business life as well. Sure. So, yeah, so my wife, um, we, we got married in 2019. We have a son who's almost three and then a daughter who's 15 months. So we are totally in it right now. <laughs> um, I made the crazy decision to uh, launch a franchise system and have our second child at the exact same time. <laughs> uh, so get it, get it all out. Do it, do it all at, uh, now. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love it. And it, and it allows me to be more measured in my, you know, cause I stopped being in front of the computer at six o'clock. Now that wasn't how it was when I first started the business, but now I stop at six o'clock. I'm not in front of the computer before eight o'clock. And then, um, I don't work on the weekends. Um, and so, Great. you know, that is my time to spend with my family and I'm very, uh, careful with my time. Uh, this is the only uh, convention that is over the weekend, <laughs> the franchise conference that's over the weekend. But um, most of them are, you know, Tuesday, Thursday or, you know, Wednesday through Friday. I think that, like yeah, that. having the balance is, is so important and yeah. particularly because, you know, lots of entrepreneurs get into a business and it just it takes over their life because they're For so sure. passionate about it. But yeah. Having having the fitness and the family mixed in and stuff. So and I'll just back you. So you were in. You were in California in the film industry in, for a while and then decided to go to Nashville and then you yep. ended up getting into the franchising world. So yeah. how, did, how did that come about, getting into franchising, selling carpet cleaning franchises straight from film and in Nashville? So it's a couple of big changes there. Yeah. So a friend of mine that I went to college with, um, I was kind of looking for what I wanted to do next and uh, I reached out to him and he goes, you should get into franchise development. And I was like, what's franchise development? <laughs> yeah. Cause I was, you know, I think like a lot of the people who think about franchising, I thought it was like McDonald's and you know, Chick-fil-A and like, I didn't know what franchise development was. And he told me that there's these service businesses that you can get into for, you know, relatively inexpensive and, you know, have a uh, kind of much higher return relative to let's say a fast food restaurant. And, and so it kind of opened my eyes up to that franchising is so much more than just legacy fast food. And so I emailed his boss every three weeks for like six months. And oh, really? Me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right into it. And so, yeah. And then Nashville. So how did, so you got a role? Yep. So I ended up getting yeah. hired and then I bought a house in Nashville and that's where our corp the corporate. Um, oh, that's the, where the head office was. Right. Okay. So I was in the office for the first like eight months or so. And then since 2018, I've been um, remote um, on any, anything I've ever done. And so a few, so... You told the story at, uh, in um, Dallas, 400 units that you're involved in, so across multiple brands, yeah. multiple countries? Not multiple countries. Um, well, I'll give really high level. Yeah. So it was uh, carpet cleaning yep. first, 
uh, added about 200 locations in that brand in three years. And then uh, that business was purchased by a larger platform company that wanted to grow to a portfolio of service brands. They bought a brand um, in the drywall repair space. We did kind of a revamp of that and turned it around, um, bought it from the founder, so it was a merging brand. And um, I added 223 locations to that brand in two years, so Mm -hmm. in 24 months. And they all opened with jobs on the calendar and estimates um, and an employee hired prior to going to training, which was really exciting. Um, So that was, you know, now 423 locations in essentially five years, um, roughly for four and a half for five years. Um, And then um, they wanted me to take on another brand. We grew uh, the portfolio from three brands to 12 brands. And they're like, we're buying a 13th brand. We want you to kind of run it. Um, We think you could turn it into a franchise. Um, We'll double your salary and we'll give you a really fancy title. And I was like, I can do this on my own. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to stay stay with you at the moment now. So the way you were bringing on the franchisees at the time was, you know, was it still a lot of the franchisor's process? Because I'm going to talk about your new processes later. But those processes, obviously you were doing something right in that to bring on so many franchisees. So what sort of things were you learning in your, you know, apprenticeship or your (laughs) early days for yourself? So the first time that I learned how to sell franchises, it's very like you, you take them through this process and if they follow this process, they're going to be a good franchisee. This is what I talked about at the let's grow conference. And, um, it was kind of like, if they don't do the exact process, then they don't sit through the webinar, then they're not going to be a good franchisee. And Mm. that was kind of what I was taught. And um, what I found is that uh, I would lose candidates because they wanted questions answered at different times because people consume information in different ways. But if they weren't willing to wait until slide 17 on call number three to learn about the marketing, then I didn't tell them about the marketing, which is like, because that was what I was taught. That's the process, yeah. But that might be what they want to know on call one. And um, so it didn't, and, and then it was very like, I'm in the sales position and the franchise, potential franchisees in the buyer position. And so it was kind of like an imbalance of like, because I think a franchise or franchisee relationship should be a partnership. Now, obviously there's legal aspects to yep. making sure that the franchisee is compliant. Um, however, like that should be like a worst case scenario to talk about compliance. It should always be engagement and relationships with each other. But if I'm selling the franchise and they're buying the franchise, and then I'm also over here as the franchise or telling them what to do, it's just this imbalanced relationship. And I believe that franchise, uh, responsible franchising starts in the franchise development process. And so anyways, I did that for two years and, um, found that the candidates were okay, but like there were critical thinkers that I felt probably could could have been good franchisees in retrospect that wouldn't have kind of gone through this compliant process because they just wanted their questions answered when they wanted an answer, (laughs) which totally makes sense. So with, uh, with the drywall repair brand, I adapted my process to be more consultive. So I would ask more questions. I'd listen more and then I'd understand the business model that I was selling to the point where I could be nimble and talk about whatever it is that needs to be talked about. But the, uh, there were still process and steps, but it would be more or less, or it is now more or less tailored to the, the potential franchisee. So with the, the rapid growth that you had, I'm still going to stick to your, yeah. your, your an employee role at the moment, but yeah. you, what sort of challenges were they having? Cause they're bringing on so many people today. Right. That's a lot of franchisors 
their systems and processes struggle to keep up with their growth and things right. like that. So right. how did you manage that in the business with all these you know, 400 or so franchisees? Yeah, so we'll talk about the brand that I was more involved from an infrastructure yeah. standpoint because the first brand I didn't have a ton of um, involvement on infrastructure. So when I um, got involved with the, the drywall repair brand, we effectively had to build a franchise system and we had to build it with 100 locations that didn't have a fully robust franchise system. So we, we did that and, um, and, and once we launched a franchisee that we knew could be, you know, doing business in his first week and all that kind of stuff, we then, um, I knew we were prepared to, to kind of grow. And so, you know, when we added that many units, like there were things that we had in place that worked. Now, there were also things that didn't work, mm. which was, um, you know, and I'll just kind of talk very loosely, like they needed business coaches to be in-house, right? Um, and it's a small town or a small city that they, you know, were headquartered in. And like, you only have so much talent if you're limited to people who, yeah. you know, yep. live there. Um, so that was a challenge. I would have loved to add like a call center that would have made, you know, I believe the franchisees more money. There were just things that I was still confined to. Um, and I wasn't in control, you know, of the operations. So we, we still did really good and I'm really proud of what we did. Um, but the part of the reason why I am doing what I'm doing now is because I needed to be 100% in control of what happens to franchisees after they sign. So January 2023, uh, baby arrived yeah. around this time. November, just, yeah, yeah, 22, yeah. yeah, but yeah. So you've got a new baby, you're still not getting much sleep, you know, <laughs> you've been offered this, you know, great role, the business yeah. is flying, right? and you've gone, come home to your wife and said, we're going to do it ourselves. <laughs> How did that conversation go? Yeah, right. So exactly. So... Yeah, so I get offered double my salary. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know, be be kind of on track to be in the C-suite position probably within the next five to ten years or so. And I come to my wife and I say, "So I'd like to franchise a business. I don't have the business yet, but I'm gonna find it. I I'm gonna raise capital. I don't have capital yet, but I'm gonna find <laughs> it. I want to know what your thoughts are because she's six seven months pregnant at the time." And um, after multiple discussions, she goes, Aaron, I know you're going to take care of us. Go do what you want to do. Like, go find it. Go do it. And that's great to have support like yeah. that. Um, so then what comes next? The brand or the capital or simultaneously? They had to like, go simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. So so I had never structured a deal like this before. And there's also like, you can't go on Google and type in like, how do I acquire the franchise rights for a 33 year old power washing business? Like there's no like articles to tell you. How to, like there's no like, you didn't learn is, that at film school. No, no, they don't teach that at your theoretical film school. So, um, I kind of just like had an idea of how I thought it should go. Um, but ultimately like, and I had also never raised capital before. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what a cap table was like, literally yeah. I didn't know what a class a or BC share like, but I knew that I could make it happen and, get through it and figure it out. And I ended up looking at two dozen different businesses, okay. uh, all in the residential and commercial services space. I met the founders of Rolling Suds in September of 2022. So I was still a W2 employee yep. at this time. Um, and it was the best business I looked at. So like, how big was it then? How big was the brand? The yeah. brand? yeah, so 2.2 uh, million, okay. um, no locations. Oh, no, no, okay. oh, yeah. All, and all that's yeah. particularly what I was looking for. I, I wanted to find a business that had a good core technical processes that I could then build a franchise so system around. Right. Mm -hmm. So I could effectively become the franchisor, but partner with the, 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 the business yeah. to then franchise it. 
but let them keep doing what they're good at, which is whatever the business is that they're working on. So rather than start something from scratch and have to find a logo and do all of that Correct. stuff, find an existing business that's a successful business that's not franchised. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, just to be clear, like I had to do the, we redid the logo, like, like you know, we had to file new trademarks. Yeah, I had yeah. to do an FDD, like we did operations manuals, we built training programs, but we, I don't, I didn't know anything about power washing or insulation or painting or any of the brands I was looking at in the sense that like, I've never ran a power washing company, but I knew a ton about franchising and I knew how to build a franchise system. Mm. And so I was just looking for basically that, let's call it a widget to plug into everything that I already knew, the suppliers, the vendor relationships, the training programs. And, and that, so that's what I was, I was looking for. And, and, and I like that a lot because I've done a turnaround of a brand and you have to do a culture shift. And it's almost like you're, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from negative scratch. <laughs> and, um, and so now, um, you know, with, with rolling suds, we are able to take off and, and, and it's just been an incredible ride so far. And so I'm going to go back to the capital stuff. So there's a whole different language in talking to private equity yeah. and capital raisings that yeah. you learned. So how did you go about finding your partner? Because sure. You, you, if you're learning so much and there's, yeah. you know, at the IFA now, there's 15 private equity firms right. here. So how did right. you go about selecting the partners and, and how did that process go for you with the education? So I was zero, I had zero interest in private equity money. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the purpose is, is like, I didn't know if we're going to need 20 years, three years, eight years to get it to where, um, you know, it's stabilized and franchisees are producing royalties and revenue and they're profitable and all that kind of stuff. If you sign up with private equity, they have a specific type of turn and they typically take a majority. Mm -hmm. There are minority private equity companies, but they're still looking for kind of a shorter term exit. So I wanted, I was advised to raise smart money. There's a lot of dumb money out there. <laughs> so smart money is for any listeners yeah. is essentially like uh, mentors or capital partners that could provide uh, what I like to call intellectual capital and uh, in addition to actual capital. So uh, the people that I raised from all have a very uh, specific type of skill that um, from a men mentorship perspective could add value uh, above and beyond just money. Um, so like one of our, um, investors is Brad Fishman and he, um, you know, runs him and his family, you know, um, yep. for people outside the industry, he's, you know, their family is one of the most well-respected families in franchising, yeah. if not the yeah. most, um, David Barr, who, you know, has over a thousand restaurants across multiple concepts and is a multi-brand franchisor. So. Uh, and I have a, a, you know, former DLA attorney who's also on my board and, and then, so, so that is how so we did it. So you put the cap table together. Literally. Directly with different investors. Correct. That have franchising experience. Yes. Have industry experience. Yes. Who could help accelerate where yeah. we need to go so that stuff that I don't know as well, I can then call and ask them things. So, um, and, and all of those, like their uh, expertise is, is considerably more valuable than the capital that they put in. So uh, our, our, our uh, cap table are all minority investors. I invest in my own capital. I'm the majority shareholder in the company. And then our founders also in, in invested their capital. So everyone's incentives are aligned to grow this the right way responsibly. And it's, it's long-term patient capital, which was also very important for me. And it's been 
rapid growth, so it's yeah. gone well. Um, yeah. So how many franchisees do we have now, and yeah. how's it, <clears throat> and what's the pipeline looking like? Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, so we have sold in um, about eleven and a half months, one hundred and twenty-seven locations in twenty-four states to forty franchisees. Every one of those franchisees will be open uh, by April, by the end of April. Uh, so it's really important for me not to sell more units than I can actually open. Yeah. And you know, as we get to talking about responsible franchising, that's um, part of what I think it is. Um, the franchisees who have launched have launched in a similar position with full-time skilled labor, or excuse me, full-time unskilled yeah. labor hired prior to going to training. And then we have marketing vendors that we turn leads on for them prior to going to training. Um, so yeah, we're in 24 states. We'll likely be in um, you know close to 40 states by the end of the year. We'll have you know over um, you know 200 locations, and um, and I believe we're doing it the right way. Now, for any franchisors or emerging franchisors that are listening to this, I would never recommend that someone who didn't have experience in franchising grow this rapidly. They're gonna oh yeah for sure. They're yeah. just not gonna be in a good position. Franchisees are gonna fail. Um, but uh, fortunately, with uh, the, the the experiences that I've had, I can foresee what the p potential challenges are going to be two years from now, and I can plan for that today. Yeah, and you've got the right people surrounding you know, right. surrounding yourself and collaborating with the right people. So, so responsible franchising. You talked about it in Dallas um, that it starts in that recruitment frame dev yeah. time. So, how did you know? It's it, people are talking about it a lot. So you know. Uh, Matt talked about it at the intro for the IFA conference. Um, yeah. So what does it mean for you? The so I started talking about responsible franchising a um, little over a year ago. And um, with for, for me, with what I've seen in the franchise industry, I believe there is somewhat of a kind of changing of the guard happening currently. Um, you've got the older generation in their mid-50s, 60s uh, transitioning out. And then you've got my generation of 35, 40 year olds transitioning into a lot of these leadership roles, whether it's founders and everything like that. Um, I believe the current um, ascending uh, generation of franchisors, um, franchise professionals by and large believe in responsible franchising, which I believe is just kind of pr prioritizing the franchisee experience and, um, and success and success. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and kind of looking at it from the lens of, of an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. So the scarcity mindset is like, I need to squeeze out as much margin for the franchisor as possible, regardless of what it does for the franchisee's bottom line. I believe the abundance mindset is like how successful and can we make fr franchisees and the more fr successful our franchisees are, the more successful we are now because my experience has been heavily weighted in franchise development and because I've seen what that looks like on the kind of sales side and, and, and been put in positions where it's like, we got to sell units, mm. you know, we've got to, what, you know, we've got to sell units. Um, that is where I believe the, the responsible franchising process starts Be, and, and I'll tell you why. I mean, if someone buys into a franchise system and they think, let's just say that it's going to require this much involvement because that's what they were told, but it ends up being much more involvement or they were told that the unit economics looked like this, but it actually looks completely different. Well, what happens is now is we have uh, fr franchisees stepping into a system where they feel deceived 
or lied to, or it's going to be more work, or it's going to be more capital. Before they've even opened the doors. Before they've even opened <laughs> the doors. And so now they're essentially fighting an uphill battle, and the franchisor doesn't have the support to provide um, to them. So um, so I, I try to talk about it a lot because if, if we can all, uh, as an industry, start practicing responsible franchising practices in the franchise sales and development process, I think we'll just have more successful franchisees and... And then thereby, we will have a more reputable industry um, uh, to those uh, who either think it's McDonald's or they think don't <laughs> it, buy you, franchises. You back at film school when you say when you don't really understand the industry, Correct. and it's interesting. It's the same in Australia as it is here, where it's a it's a great successful industry. It's very, but there's still a perception that things go wrong at different times. Franchise right. laws are out there to make money out of the franchisees and sure. stuff. So you talked about things like capital advocacy, choosing the right franchisees, sustainable growth, and clear expectations. So this is all things, sort of concepts that you felt were really important in that sales yeah. process. Yeah. So I'll talk about each one. So yeah. capital adequacy. So the franchisor needs to have the right amount of money to support franchisees which is more than every single person listening to this podcast probably thinks it is for a brand new brand. Um, you know, and then uh, making sure that the franchisee has more than enough money to get to profitability. So I advise franchisors when they ask me, how much money do I need? How much, should I, <laughs> what should I put aside? And, you know, I always ask franchisors, like emerging franchisors, like how much money do you have to go towards franchising? And they're like 60,000. 80,000. Oh, really? 40,000. Like it's, I've only spoken with probably two, and you know how much content I put out. I've yeah. only spoken with probably two franchisors that had over a million dollars and were willing to invest in that. Um, and then with franchisees, like oftentimes franchisees are advised to take out big, large SBA loans, and it's a brand new startup business, and they might have $60,000 liquid. And they can put the 17% of the SBA loan down, but then they go into the business and they've got a $4,000 monthly note and it's going to take them, I don't know, however many years to get up to, let's just say 125 or 150,000 in like seller's discretionary earnings. And it obviously depends on the model and things vary, but like if you have a $4,000 monthly payment times 12 and now you're it's taking you up to like you're not going to be break even for a while. So it's we make sure yeah the debt levels, if that how it balances yeah. out between what they've got to invest. It's the same in Australia. Like the banks in Australia will lend up to fifty percent. Yeah, but the financial models that the franchisors are presenting often don't have debt. They don't have debt in them. Yeah, and so um, we personally with Rolling Suds, we don't allow anyone to come in with an SBA loan. Okay, we don't do it. Um, everyone has to have either it in liquidity or assets. So it can be home equity lines of credit, it can be 401ks, it can be loans on um, on their portfolio, it can be cash, it can be a combination of IRAs, whatever it is. So that's kind of the capital adequacy part. Setting clear expectations is telling the franchisees in the franchise development process, it's gonna be hard and you're gonna work a lot. And, uh, but you're buying a business and that's how business works. Then you're going to start firing yourself from roles, which is like what I like to say, and hiring people who are better at you than those things. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be like on the truck, like with Rolling Suds. Like mm -hmm. we're going to have you hire two people prior to going to training. But the point is, is whatever your model is, you have to be able to set clear expectations of what it's going to be like. And my belief is that if a franchisee knows exactly what it's going to be like and they still buy the business, 
then we're going to have better validation after the fact because they're not, they don't feel like the wool's been pulled over their eyes. Yeah. And what we've seen with uh, a lot of the rise in the sales organizations and external uh, franchise development um, is that uh, it's really hard to align incentives between the franchisor and the franchisee and the sales organizations, right? And so if a, a franchisor hires a franchise sales organization, they're going to have less capital to support franchisees, and they're probably likely going to sell more units than doing it on their own, right? Because those relationships and that infrastructure is there, which means that the franchisor needs to have even more money. Yeah. Um, so so I, what I do is um, I tell franchisees exactly what it's going to be like. Like, here's what we're going to do. Here's what our expectations are of you. If we do what we're going to do and you do what you say you're going to do, we could have a really good And that might involve getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning every day. It might involve working on a Sunday. Might, all those things that... Correct. Yeah. It's you, not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. And... and um, but it's going to be easier. It's going to be better than you doing it on your own. Yep. Because these are the systems we've built and let's talk about the systems. And so, you know, choosing the right franchisees is kind of the fourth, or excuse me, the, um, the third uh, tenant of, yep. of responsible franchising that I proposed. And so I sat down with the founders of Rolling Suns and I said, what makes a good, why are you guys good at your, at your business? Like, what are the skills that you have and the attributes you have that have allowed this business to grow? And then I basically came up with a profile, an avatar, of who's gonna be successful in my system and who's not. And so we turn away more than we bring in. We've turned away 48 people who had the capital and weren't right for our system. Um, but that's because I like putting the right people in the right seats. I don't want to have people in a system where they don't have a chance for success because honestly, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if someone was buying into my system and then just like, they shouldn't be there. Um, so I turn away everyone who's not right for us. Um, and then the, the final kind of tenet of what I proposed, uh, for responsible franchising, um, is sustainable growth. So, um, and this kind of goes into capital adequacy a little bit, um, because you, if you add more units, then you can, you can actually open and support, you get into a situation where you actually can't deliver, even if you had good infrastructure for, let's say eight franchisees in a year but you end up selling 40, you no, no longer have the infrastructure necessary to support. Which is your comment earlier around, if you haven't done franchising before, you can't open 127. You, should, you should not open 127 yeah. locations. Yeah. Um, and and you know there's, there's ways that people who wanna get into franchising can get into franchising without having a war chest of money. And I try to tell people that like, <clears throat> If you have a good ice cream business and you have two locations in Salt Lake City, go open another location in, you know, Boise and like prove it out. And then once it's proven out, sell that location to someone and now you have your first franchisee. And now you have built-in validation and you have cash flow then to support the, the, the franchise or open multiple locations as corporate stores and then sell them off. And, and so there's things that you can do, but like definitely no one should start a franchise system with less than, I don't know, a, a half a million dollars oh, min sure. minimum, probably closer to a, at least a million. And, and that is on the service side. If it takes them 12 to 18 months to get the build out of something, they're going to need even more money because 
guess who needs support now for 12 to 18 months? The franchisee who just took out an SBA loan potentially and debt and has a payment monthly and is doing a build out. So it's really protecting the franchisors for themselves from themselves a Correct. little bit because just understanding that because franchisors are entrepreneurial, you know, they've got big dreams right. and, and then but not just understanding that it's a difficult process. Right, and, and sure. it's other people investing their money and their time. Right. I'm really the the choosing the right franchisees is also something that we're really passionate about. We partnered with Zoracle. Right. So all, we use the profiling tool that Zoracle has for the US in right. our Australian businesses. Yeah. Um, so really understanding that the characteristics and competencies of the franchisees yes. and making sure that from a value and a culture point of view, they're the right people yeah. to go into your system at the right stages of growth for your business. Because right. the type of franchisee that you get when you start up to when you're a different franchisee, different franchisee, different you, franchisee. when you've got all those systems and processes. And so you've, oh, we won't go through all the seven steps that you've got, which is I think really fascinating Thank you. about change, you know, making it the, the franchisees process rather right. than the franchisors. But a couple of things, one of them you mentioned was bringing in the partner into the process early. Right. So the life partner or business partner, I'm guessing, you know, who, who that person is, not the person who's making the application is, you know, moving moving away from just them. How have you found that? You know, is that common? Yeah, it- so a, a lot of people, what I've seen is they'll say, all right, we're just needing to, need to have the spouse sign off on the spousal guarantee at the end of the mm. agreement. And like, you, you, it's a huge decision to buy a franchise. They're investing like a lot of money and all their time and putting a ton of risk in. And so I always offer to the, fran- the potential buyers at the beginning, like, listen, Tell me who's going to be involved in the decision-making process. What if if it's your spouse and they're not going to be involved in the business? What are their what's their perspective on, you know, buying a franchise? What are these things that that they're thinking about? And ultimately, like, it may feel it may think you may think you only have one person to like take through the process, but ultimately, like, if you don't have that that their either life partner or their business partner in the process in the beginning you're just going to have to restart over again later or you're essentially putting the onus on that um, either husband or business partner or wife to go and now sell the opportunity effectively to their life partner or their business partner. Whereas like my thought is, well, if we can all be on the same page from the beginning, um, then we can decide whether or not this is the right fit rather than getting down to the end stages and saying, all right, well, let's start the process entirely over again now that we've gotten here and it's just also a, a i think a colossal waste of time <laughs> waste of everyone's time yeah. <laughs> yeah so i know you talked about you know that first meeting is all for you you know building trust listening asking yeah. questions and things like that which is which is fantastic and then not um things like you know the the candidate applies you know whether you phone them i think you say don't know just send them a text because the people no one answers the phone anymore right, anyway right, right so that um so you've got through and then you said earlier the discovery day process in your previous roles and probably most franchise systems still have that either in face to face or webinar discovery day so right. you don't even do that anymore no so. no so i have a series of conversations which i truly believe are a series of conversations and we move uh, essentially at the pace of the, the, the candidate um, while still setting expectations that these are the things that we want to make sure to cover on the next call. But rather than it being, this is the next step in our process. And if you don't go to this step in this process, yeah. you're not going to make it to the third step. And making like it be all about like, 
<clears throat> let's make this person see if they're going to be compliant in the sales process. And, and then when they get to, you know, a discovery day, we're going to, we're going to do these like different mental tests and things like <laughs> that. Like I just find it to be relatively manipulative. Um, and, um, and, and so my thought process is, is like when I used to do webinars and I would do a webinar six hours a day and I do the same thing six hours a day, the buyer is now the, the franchisee or the potential franchisee is now the buyer and I'm the seller and you can't like, and if you just think to like your own personal experience, if you have feel like you've ever been sold something, you're never going to be happy about it later because, well, maybe not necessarily, but like you <laughs> probably paid too much, took too long, paid too much, <laughs> took too long. Or yeah. you're like, wait, I was really sold on this couch and I'm not super excited about yeah. it, but like I bought it cause there was a really good sales guy. It's like buying a franchise. Isn't just like a, it's, it is a, it is a much bigger thing than something you can just sell to someone. And so I find that, that by doing the webinars and the discovery days, there's an imbalance of uh, mutual risk. For me, if I bring someone in and I give them 750,000 population and they give me $50,000 per territory, like I'm now in trust, I'm now in business with that person for 10 years. So they need to sell me just as much as I sell them. It's a mutual determination of whether or not this is a good fit. But if I'm effectively performing for them or my team is performing for them and, and then at the end of the discovery day, it's like, I'm sending you a contract. You've got two days to sign. Mm -hmm. Like, the, and that's what's been done for years, yeah, yeah. right? And, um, and so that doesn't feel right to me. Um, now, I understand why it's done. I totally understand that there's like a decision-making process on that side. But what I've found is by and large, the, uh, the, the discovery day is more of a sales tactic than a, should we sign off yes or no on this person? And now it depends on which franchisor you ask and what they say, but it is typically a sales closing tactic. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of other things to cover. We could be, we could be chatting all day, but thank you very much. I know at the IFA, there's a lot going on. So yeah. thank you for taking some time thank today. Thank you so much for having um, me. I love the conversation and the way that you've, you know, reimagining, redesigning the franchising process of recruitment and it's uh, and responsible franchising. So thank you very thank much. Thank you so much for having me on, Bruce. I okay. appreciate it. Thank you.